This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The Office of Developmental Primary Care in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UCSF. Uh, she provides primary care to adults uh, with medical fragility and, be- and complex behavioral problems. Uh, she has been working with in this field at least for the past 10 years, and today is going to talk to us about a different kind of a topic, which is, uh, if I can find the title here, Dis- <laughs> Working with Sensory Movement Disorders and Autism. Dr. Kripke. Thanks so much, Jerry. Hi. I have nothing to disclose. So the reason why I wanted to give this talk is because I have come to understand that a lot of what we know for sure about autism just isn't true. We've developed services for autistic people which are based on the belief that autism is primarily a psychological problem characterized by deficits in social understanding and restricted behaviors and interests. But I've come to believe that autism is better accommodated when it's understood as a neurological condition. Increasingly, people working in a neurological paradigm are achieving remarkably good outcomes, especially for those who don't speak or those whose speech is unreliable and for those who have prominent symptoms of dyspraxia. Dyspraxia is difficulty coordinating movement. So what I want to talk about today is to lead you through this thinking, um, starting with, is autism a thing? And going to what we know about sensory and movement differences in autism, what are the implications of that? Is autism better accommodated when it's understood as a neurological difference? What are self-advocates telling us, and, and why should we listen? <coughs> Ten years ago, we definitely thought autism was a thing, and everybody was looking for the gene. We were looking for that vaccine that was causing it. It's a crisis. It's taking over the world. I think we've largely moved through that, thankfully, although echoes of it sometimes rear their ugly heads. But a diagnosis of autism doesn't correlate with any specific trait or characteristic. People can be super smart or have significant cognitive challenges. They can be organized or have very difficult executive function problems. They can be, uh, I I know autistic people who are competitive surfers and others who use wheelchairs. They may or may not have seizures. Uh, They may have normal or very acute uh, or, or scrambled senses. They might be even deaf or blind. They might be quite regulated to a fault or they may have very significant anxiety and behavior problems and mental health problems. So basically we're talking about a condition that describes the full range of human traits and behaviors. It's not a very specific clinical diagnosis, if, if, it, if it makes sense at all. So how did, how did we get here to, to defining this thing called autism? It was defined by psychiatrists 
who were rooted in 20th century cultural ideas about intelligence, eugenics, and social hygiene. Early work and treatments was based on Skinner's framework. Skinner believed that observable behavior is the only relevant target of treatment and that controlled experimental designs are the only way to evaluate its effectiveness. In Skinner's paradigm, we know that a treatment works if you present a stimulus and the person consistently responds in the way you expect. For Skinner, thoughts, feelings, emotions, any other non-observable or less measurable aspect of, of cognition is just not relevant. Skinner thought that we don't have to ask questions about why people behave the way they do beyond a simplistic analysis of ABC, the stimulus, the behavior, and the consequence. Medical causes of behavior changes aren't assessed. But, of course... <laughs> We know that autistic people, what, what autistic people think and feel is critically important. Their past experiences and traumas are completely relevant. Their health status is crucial. Understanding the reasons why they do what they do is core to developing good support. Autism is defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychi Psychiatric Associations, but even the APA itself has begun to question the validity of the DSM classification scheme because it's based on a professional consensus about clusters of psychological and behavioral symptoms rather than on more objective biological data. And the fields of psychiatry and neurology are growing closer together every day as our understanding of the basic science of both fields continues to improve. It's pretty clear that there isn't one autism nor is it a single condition with a range of presentations that go from mild to severe. Autism is a catch-all diagnosis that includes a really wide range of etiologies, traits, characteristics, strengths, challenges, genes, environmental influences, and biology. Autistic people have a wide range of strengths and challenges. People with significant support needs also have great gifts. Different parts of the brain perform different functions. We know this. For example, there's different spots for speech, language, and reading. They have connections between them. But the connections can be too weak or too strong. For example, someone who speaks might have difficulty reading. Someone who signs English may not be able to speak. Someone who reads and who has language may still have trouble speaking even though they can write. Applied behavior analysis, the most common treatment for autism, assumes that what you see is a good representation of what's going on in the brain, but it isn't. Many autistic people have a lot more going on inside than they can show. The brain is also connected to the body. 
The peripheral nervous system is made up of the afferent motor system and the efferent sensory system. The efferent carries signals from the brain to the muscles so that we can move and do things we want to do. The afferent system carries sensory information to the brain. Sometimes those messages get scrambled. This leads to action problems that can look a lot like autistic behavior. I used to teach that all behavior is communication, and I'm here today to tell you, to admit, to confess, I was wrong. Not all behavior is communication. Some of it is not purposeful at all. It's an artifact of difficulty organizing and regulating the sensory and movement system, even if it appears intentional. We, we all have experience with this. For example, how many of you have ever changed your password and then typed in the old password? Your fingers just automatically do it. It's motor memory. You don't have a cognitive problem. We've all done that. How many of you have ever gotten startled and bopped someone before you could process that they aren't a threat? Your limbic system just went boom, fight or flight, and, and your cortical brain that understood the context and inhibited that uh, didn't, didn't kick in fast enough. You're, you're not aggressive people. Have, have you ever walked into a crowded convention hall where there were hundreds of conversations and you were just hit by this wall of sound and you couldn't distinguish any conversation? You don't have that. I, I would say you don't have a hearing problem, but I don't know whether you do or not, but, but that's not a, a manifestation of a hearing problem. Maybe when you went to that convention hall, you saw someone you know, and then suddenly you could pick out just their voice when you couldn't distinguish it before you saw them, before you got that sensory information of seeing them and hooked up the, the visual with the auditory. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to learn a new dance and the instructor's next to you and you're rocking out and you're doing a really good job and then another student is next to you and they're flubbing up the steps and they got the rhythm all wrong and you can't do it anymore? Yeah. You, you weren't faking your difficulty. You weren't someone who had mastered that motor plan and, and uh, now with this, uh, in this new environment uh, un unable to do it. Uh, that, that's, we're taking in sensory information and that affects what we can do in terms of our motor control. Have you ever done a let's say, a, like a, a fine motor task, then you get into a rhythm, and you're really fast and accurate with it, and then someone interrupts you and you mess it up? Yeah, I've done that too. Have you ever gotten nervous and your body froze or you were unable to speak? Have you ever been in a classroom where you could hear the professor, but you weren't turned in to what he was saying until the professor said your name, and then suddenly you shifted your attention and, and could, were tuned into what the professor was saying? Autistic people who have verbal and motor apraxia describe bodies that don't obey their minds, where these types of sensory and movement integration glitches happened frequently throughout the day, creating challenges with navigating their world. 
Imagine how frustrating it would be if people assumed that these sensory and movement glitches actually represented cognitive or behavioral problems or a lack of social interests. She typed the wrong password, there must, therefore she must have terrible short-term memory. She bopped her friend, so she must have irritability and aggression. We need a pill for that. She doesn't approach groups. She must be in a world of her own. She's demonstrated she can write her name before, so, and she isn't doing it now. That must mean that she isn't cooperative, cooperative or, or motivated. You, you can see how people would come to these conclusions, but it's also to see the frustration and the despair that it could cause. I'll tell you a story from our uh, CART Services consult team about how powerful it can be to understand autism as a neurological condition. We were consulted on a client, and the information we were given uh, was that this was a, a client who was constantly violent. This, this client, they were, the regional center was, was exploring out-of-state out of placement in an institution because nothing was helping. They had consulted multiple behaviorists, and none of their top-level behavioral programs or top-level behavioral homes uh, were willing to serve this, this client anymore. And so when we went out there, we were prepared to meet someone who was quite dangerous. But when we got there, we saw what they were talking about. This person wasn't aggressive or violent at all. He had more like a repetitive movement, uh, a, a tick, and it was like this. And it was very stereotyped. It was always the same, always the same hand. It was unemotional. There was no emotion behind it. He wasn't like going after somebody. It was just boom. It was easily inhibited by his aides who would just touch his arm and he would pull it back when they, when they just touched his arm. It was more like a tick than an attack. And if you stood close to him on that side of his body, right in that line, he'd get you and it would hurt. Uh, but we asked, you know, has he caused any injuries? No, no injuries. Instead of fixating on this tick, the simple solution was just, you know, you know it's coming. It's coming on this side. If you stand right there, that's where you're going to get it. Stand out of his reach. Stand a step back and ignore it. <laughs> ignore it. There are other things you could do with that, like you could scramble or dilute or distract. You could gradually shape this movement into something that was less likely to get someone, like we gradually make this movement get a little lower so you're still doing it, but you're doing it down here where you're not going to get someone. It also helped. Another recommendation we made was uh, let, let's put him in a less crowded environment. He did better in a home that had fewer people and more space, so it was easier to dodge the movement. The main intervention, though, was just reinterpreting what people were seeing, just reinterpreting it in neurological terms. It didn't cure him. It didn't change him. But that intervention was so effective that he found a new home. The program that, that he started uh, with this new paradigm was focused on activities instead of his movement problem. And the last we heard, he was doing well. 
He wasn't needing one-on-one -on -one support anymore, and he was no longer at risk of out-of-home placement or, or placement in an institution. Powerful. And an analogy to this would be Tourette syndrome or stuttering. When you have a person with Tourette syndrome who's involuntarily making loud sounds, using swear words, or a person who is stuttering, who's getting stuck on a word, the best way that we can help them is to ignore it, is to just move on. By focusing on it, it usually makes it worse and it makes it more disruptive to others. If we just ignore it and say, oops, move on, uh, uh, they're able to function better. And if we increase their anxiety by fixating on it, then it actually makes them stutter more or, or makes the involuntary movement worse. Movement varies from more purposeful to more automatic. Movements that start as purposeful can become automatic with practice. We've all done this as motor memory. You practice something enough, you get better at it, and it becomes something that you have to think about less. Reflexive movements can also become automatic, and that's probably how that started. There was probably somebody that this person wanted to bop um, <laughs> at, at one point, but then it just became a repetitive movement that they couldn't stop. Sometimes... Automatic movements can be helpful, like, uh, and, but sometimes they aren't. For example, it helps to practice actions like walking and talking and do those automatically. But if it becomes an obsession, it can be frustrating. For instance, if I want to put on my shoes in the morning, it's really helpful to have the motions to put on my shoes down really well, to tie them and to do that pretty automatically. And it helps to have that motor plan well practiced. But if I go to the beach, I don't want to see my shoes and have that trigger that motor plan so I put them on automatically even though I'm not ready to go home. Our ability to control our purposeful movement is a gift. And autistic people have other gifts like persistence and clear thinking. Some movements happen unconsciously, like the muscle movements of digestion. There was a discussion at the last interagency autism coordinating uh, committee workshop on health about whether the same micro-movement issues that we're finding are affecting skeletal muscles and our ability to control our muscles, maybe that those same issues uh, I'll go back to the, the slide that, that, that the brain is also controlling our autonomic mo uh, motor system and the system that uh, affects peristalsis. That's the movements that your bowel makes to make food go down, uh, go down the right track towards, towards the bottom. Uh, what, what if the same kind of movement discoordination is also affecting those automatic movements Maybe some of that accounts for the constipation that's so prevalent in autism. So what do we know about sensory and movement issues in autism? By assessing the traits and characteristics of individuals, autism can be addressed without even being named. You don't need a label. I think it's helpful to get away from those diagnostic labels because they free us from our unconscious bias about what autistic people are. Without preconceived notions, we can better identify their individual 
strengths and what we have to work with and the challenges that we have to work around in order to provide education, communication, and opportunity. They're individuals, no traits and, and characteristics in common, each one different. What learning channels are open at any given time? Can we get their visual attention? Is, is their auditory pathway more open to me at this moment to teach them? What if I tried a tactile or a kinesthetic uh, method to focus their attention? We have experience with this too. Some of you are very focused on your visual attention. You're on your cell phone and you're tuning me out. But maybe there's something I could do to get your attention back to the auditory, like what, what if I changed the rate of my voice or I started to whisper or I said something really loud. I could get you into your auditory pathway by doing something a little bit different to shake it up. What we know, what do we know about sensory and movement issues? We know that first, performance doesn't equal intelligence. If an examiner asks a question, there's all sorts of reasons why somebody might not respond or might not respond correctly. Maybe there were sensory distractions. Maybe the picture wasn't presented in the person's narrow field of vision. Maybe the question prompted an automatic response rather than a purposeful response in response. We see this with echolalia. Most intelligence testing has been normed on people who speak fluently and in people who have very well-regulated sensory and movement skills and, uh, and, and uh, how, how those norms apply to people who don't uh, is, is something that I think we need to question. There's a growing body of research showing that intelligence testing in autism doesn't consistently prov provide valid results, and it's causing us to underestimate people. Think about what would happen for a second if we administered an intelligence test to Stephen Hawking, but we took away his AAC device so he couldn't communicate. What if we just assumed that his inability to respond meant that he didn't understand? Who else are we doing that to? Historically, we've done this to non-speaking people before. We did this to the deaf community. We presumed that people who were deaf, who had unclear speech, had intellectual disabilities. We did it to Helen Keller. She had to overcome the resistance of skeptics in order to be admitted to Radcliffe College because people thought her aides were giving her the answer or communicating for her in some way. Intelligence, intelligence also is not a, a fixed trait or a fixed capacity. It isn't a prognosis. The full richness of a person's cognitive and communicative and sensory and movement function can't be encapsulated into a two or three digit number. We need to presume competence, even in people who don't speak or whose speech is unreliable communication. 
a lot of people push back and say, you know, presume competence, uh, that, that's not a good thing because, uh, because clearly not all, all people are geniuses underneath. Um, maybe they can't communicate, but they're not all geniuses. And that's not what presuming competence means. It doesn't mean that everybody has the same cognition behind those sensory and movement differences. They have the full range, just like they have the full range of other traits and characteristics. And it also doesn't mean that all autistic people have been exposed to education or information. But what it does mean is that we presume that people can learn and grow even if they can't demonstrate what they know. Presuming competence, it's harder than it sounds to do. You have to take a leap of faith that you're making a difference even when it isn't apparent at least at first, that you're succeeding. You haven't, if you haven't seen the film, has, has anybody here seen the film Intelligent Lives? If, not too many hands going up. I, it's, it's a really great film. It, it traces the history of in, intellectual disability and that concept, and it follows three people with intellectual disabilities as they successfully pursue education and relationships and self-directed lives. And increasingly, people with autism who don't speak and who've been labeled low-functioning or who have been brought up in moderate to severe special ed classrooms are gaining access to higher education, to forming families, to working, and to pursuing a full range of opportunities. It's really exciting. What are the implications? What are the implications of these sensory and movement differences? Choosing therapeutic, therapeutic approaches needs to be individualized based on an assessment that includes an understanding of their unique and individual sensory and movement differences. A corollary to that is that we need to use caution when applying evidence. Evidence-based practice is much more than just counting up the number of peer-reviewed articles that show a therapy works or it doesn't work. We need to talk, we'll we'll talk more about applying evidence in a minute and, and how to go about that. Working with sensory and movement differences is more effective than working against them. That sounds obvious, right? Um, But it's infrequently practiced. And in fact, the structure of the individual education plan system is a deficit model. We assess people, we make a list of every deficit they have, we come up with a plan to, for how we're going to address each one, and then the dreaded measurable objectives. We need to be able to prove that what we're doing is making a difference, and in a pretty short time frame, within, uh, within uh, three months, um, and, and if we can't, then we assume we failed. Presuming competence, at least at first, requires a leap of faith. It isn't a play, there, in our current educational system and in our deficit framework for it, there isn't a place for that. There isn't a place for people who haven't learned the skills yet to demonstrate everything they know and to communicate fluently. 
That can lead to people getting stuck with IEPs that are focused on weaknesses instead of strengths and with goals that make them do basic work over and over and over again. This burns out parents and it burns out staff too who don't see progress despite a lot of money and effort. Everybody needs a fluent form of communication, of expressive communication. This needs to be an early and top priority. Don't give up. The Office of Developmental Primary Care's guide, Everybody Communicates, is available out there at our, at our table. It's also available online, and it helps you figure out how to get an assessment that takes into account sensory, movement, and cognitive differences, and how to assess services. It, uh, there's also information in your handout. The United for Communication Choices website has information. When exploring options for treatment, listen to autistic people. Read what they say. I've given you a small sampling of blogs in your handout. Go explore them. Find people who have similar traits and characteristics to the individual you're trying to help and see what worked for them. And see, those, those are probably going to be the most fruitful approaches. Because of unconscious bias, people are routinely underestimated. So presume competence, be skeptical about IQ tests, don't let a number determine your opportunities or your potential. So I promised you we would come back to applying evidence. And I want to talk about this because it's important because I think a lot of the professional organizations are moving towards what they call evidence-based practice. And wow, that sounds fabulous, doesn't it? Um, and I, as a physician, was a medical editor, and I started the, in the American Family Physician, the Cochrane for Clinicians uh, department, which is all about evidence-based practice. I, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of it, but I also recognize that only 10% of what we do in medicine even is based on good quality randomized controlled trials or other high quality evidence. Clinical trials can only answer very narrow questions. I think it was Einstein who said, not everything that can be studied is important, and not everything important can be studied. When we're talking about people with such unique and a wide range of traits and characteristics, it's hard to generalize from the experience of one person or one group of people uh, to another. Uh, they can be very different. People have also found highly idiosyncratic and highly effective ways of communicating, of learning, and of navigating the world. If something is proven useful, for an individual, that's evidence-based for that individual. We don't have to look at that individual and say, this thing that you're finding so successful and that's improving your life and that we can see you participating in your home and your school and your community and accessing the general, the, the general curriculum uh, it must be fake because we don't have a peer-reviewed article to, to prove that it's legitimate. No, it's legitimate for that person. For that person, you can see 
It's completely empiric. For an individual, the presence or absence of peer-reviewed literature is irrelevant if something is working for them. It's, the peer-reviewed literature is very relevant if you are a professional and trying to say, okay, out of this range of treatments, what, is, what is, has the best percentage chance of being effective in this person? Then, then it's important. But when you're talking about an individual who's already using a technique, even an idiosyncratic technique, effectively, um, there's no reason to interrupt it. So when we're assessing whether to apply research to a specific individual, here's what evidence-based practice tells us to do. First, does this individual share the same traits and characteristics and conditions as the people in the study? So if we have an fMRI study and it was done on people who can cooperate with getting into an MRI, does it apply to an autistic person who that would be unimaginable? They wouldn't be able to, to, to sit there. Uh, it probably doesn't. Saying that, that this was a study of autism isn't enough. We need to know whether the actual traits and characteristics of the people in the study are similar to the person we're trying to help. And sometimes the research just stops with, well, they have a diagnosis of autism and it was done with these standardized methods um, and they don't really give you a lot of information about the unique traits and characteristics of the people they enrolled in their study. It may be very hard to know whether you can generalize that study to your, to your particular individual. Second, are the outcome measures meaningful to your client? For example, a communication method that only allows you to request food items at snack at school is not very meaningful, especially if your goal is to get an education and to communicate your authentic thoughts. Not all outcomes are equally are equally meaningful to the to the person you're trying to help. Does, is is the outcome that this intervention is uh, is purporting to help something that my patient cares about, my individual patient cares about? Are the methods valid? Some research methods are more rigorous than others, but to be valid, you have to determine if the test measures what it's supposed to measure. For example, if you're trying to study the outcomes of an intervention on the ability of someone to communicate in their day-to-day -day life in a natural setting with receptive and supportive communication partners? Does a study that was done in an exam room with someone who was trying to read a script and be very neutral and objective, does it measure that? What if the test of communication consisted of a bunch of vocabulary drills? Does that really measure your ability to communicate your authentic thoughts? Is it relevant? Maybe, maybe it's research, they reported their observations, but it may not be valid in the sense that it's not measuring what, you, what you're hoping to measure. It's not valid in that construct way. Is the 
Another consideration is, is the therapy available and is there a way to implement it? And if there isn't, then as regional center staff and, and, and vendors, we need to fix that problem. But in the meantime, um, in the meantime, uh, that's not helpful to your patient, at least not, not immediately. So unfortunately, often the answer is that the therapies that are working best aren't available in public schools, and some of that is that structure of, of the IEP system, and some of it is logistical challenges with implementing some of the most effective methods in, in public school settings. A lot of them are one-to-one. They're hard to implement in group settings. They require expertise that's hard to develop when people, when staff turnover is, is very great. So, um, so there are significant challenges to making therapies available to people, and that needs to be taken into account when we decide what we offer people and what we recommend. In addition to studying what whether a, a method works, we need to study what else it does. What are the risks? What are the downsides? Just because it helps t- in, in one way doesn't mean that the risk-benefit balance is, is, on the, is favorable on, uh, on the whole. And finally, is the treatment consistent with the patients' cultural values with the, with the disability community's values and their expectations. These are all things to take into consideration. And I want to tell you another story from our consult practice to illustrate why it's so important to be careful about how we apply evidence. We were consulted on a non-speaking autistic girl who was having very serious self-injurious behavior, and her school was at their wit's end and said they could no longer serve her. So we reviewed her records, and we noted she's blind and deaf. Because her school was dedicated to evidence-based practice for autism, they were implementing PECs. Uh, Those are picture icons um, to support her communication. Yeah. Um, that's the mainstay of most uh, autism special education programs, and she's autistic, so yeah, we'll do PECs. Um, she couldn't see them. Her parents asked us, you know, why aren't they teaching her a form of tactile sign language? She's frustrated and bored. And we asked the same question, and we got them in contact with people who, who use these other methods. And uh, so, and, and, there were very sincere people working really hard, putting a lot of resources into helping this person uh, with evidence-based methods, but, but the, the assessment of, of what the, the, the assessment of her unique traits and characteristics wasn't there, and, um, and uh, it ended up frustrating her, leading to behavioral issues and frustrating. The, the staff who were working so, so hard at something that just wasn't getting them anywhere. They, they kept, you know, it's, it's frustrating if, if you've ever uh, been judged based on whether someone's making progress in those measurable objectives, and they aren't. And they're not going to if you're using the wrong method because you, under, because you have the wrong diagnosis. You have the wrong understanding of what the issues are.
I don't, I don't want you to just listen to me. I want you to listen to what self-advocates are saying. We need to listen to what they're telling us about what works for them. So let's hear directly from a self-advocate about their experience living with these sensory and movement differences. This video is... This video shows what it's like to be trapped inside an unruly body. It la the video is about seven minutes, and uh, it might be emotional for some people, so feel free to take a break if you need to. My son, Payam, was asked to give a presentation at Georgia Tech in February of 2018 at the Innovations in Education Conference. He titled his speech, Rethinking Autism and Therapeutic Approaches. Payam decided to open and close live in front of the audience in order to show them the effort and time it takes to spell out each word letter by letter on the keyboard. There once was a time in my life where I struggled to feel included in the world that surrounded me. Tears would sometimes pour like rain on a river. The thought of never expressing my wonderful, deep inner thoughts scared me tremendously. Would my parents see the real me? Will they truly hear my passion to learn from others who, like me, have dealt with adversity? These are the questions I asked myself from a very young age. Trying to make sense of the world became a game I played daily in order to occupy myself. Hearing words and conversations filled my wandering mind with meaningful thoughts. The challenge was that outsiders could not see or measure the intelligence I was acquiring. For years, I underwent various types of treatments and therapies. This was frustrating at times. But without a real way to express my opinions, I face treatments with bravery. Figuring out that I may be trapped in silence forever occurred to me around the age of nine. This realization was both startling and freeing for me. The truth is, I never gave up on the idea that there would be a time for others to find out I was trapped inside an unruly body with a lousy mouth that disobeyed. I still have moments when I'm tired of having to deal with the nonsense my body gets wrapped up in. Tireless days are spent growing against impulses that exhaust me and my loved ones, yet I persevere. Safe days with loving teachers help remind me of all I want to accomplish. Eventually, we found a way I could share my great mind with the world around me. Working meticulously hard, I learned how to harness my kind but careless body to spell out fearless thoughts. Each day, I look forward now, lucky to be surrounded by family and friends who not only see through my outward facade, but also the other silent champions, too. Challenging perceptions will be my life's work. Creating shifts takes time. Respectful dialogues lessen resistance to change. This must be carefully cultivated with professionals, educators, caregivers, and of course, the individual who's in need. 
The time has come for professionals and educators to take advice from advocates with personal experiences with chaotic impulses. Try to imagine what life would be like living without direct control over words, limbs, and motor actions. This way of living is all I know. Speech would be helpful, or so one might think, not always the case. Imagine saying every inner thought uncontrollably, or getting trapped in a repetitive pattern of nonsense chatter. But nothing is worse than being perceived as less capable than you truly are. My friends and I have dealt with this lack of honest understanding most of our lives. Try to see past this and ask yourself what more could be missing. What strategies could be used to support an individual in school, home, or the community? This evolution will take time to unfold. Progressive thinkers will need to carefully help traditional professionals find new strategies. Respectful advocates will open minds with their wise insights and perspectives. Let us work together to create dynamic shifts for future generations. This is my opportunity to give input, but there are many more who need to be heard too. The most important piece to any child's success is to feel included. This is difficult for educators to problem solve without the right tools. Identifying the right tool should be a priority. For me, it was learning to communicate by spelling each word on stencil boards. Each individual may require their own unique supports. Do not deny anyone this right, regardless of what your opinion may be. There are times when individuals with tough bodies will challenge your patience. Try to care for us the way you hope to be cared for in your time of need. Treat us with kindness, pay attention to our patterns, and help us to learn strategies to redirect our body. Never underestimate what we can learn. Fortunately, there are plenty of advocates who can back this up with examples. It is not just what our brains are capable of, but our bodies too. Figuring out how to support a motorically challenged body requires deep introspection from all parties. My teachers are not confused by my seemingly random habits. Instead, they organize my actions with meaningful activities, training my brain to focus on exercises, games, and tasks that will utilize both my brain and body. Communicating has been the best support in giving me something to focus my energy on. The more we talk about this as a community, the better. Every single person interacting with those with brain-body disconnect can have an impact on our lives. There must be fundamental changes in our belief in all of humanity. Treating individual people as though they not only matter, but can make a difference in this world is essential. Help make this happen. Opportunities for those like me are harder to come by. You, you all, all have, have the, the power to influence your families, peers, and professional communities. Can you rise up? Payam isn't alone. I have uh, another non-speaking self-advocate responded to the question, what do you want professionals to know about communication with these words? What I want people to know about communication is that it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's a motor planning issue. Before basic scientists 
researched brain anatomy, psychiatrists assumed that autistic behavior is purposeful. They had caused problems for this has caused problems for autistic people all over the world. It isn't helpful to do drills or positive behavior plans because they don't work on the brain dysfunction that makes speech hard. Another reason they don't work is because they cause anxiety and low self-esteem. Many people believe they're helping because they make charts and graphs and errorless learning models. It's as if they don't know that people learn from mistakes. Behavioral training is merely drilling motor plans, so with a prompt you get the response you want, but it isn't necessarily the response intended. The intent may be, help, stop, you're underestimating me. I want to learn regular lessons, talk to me normally, stop patronizing me. It's making me fear for my future. Let me understand my body and harness it so we can be friends. The basic science of autism and the sensory movement differences and the study of dyspraxia and autism is expanding rapidly, but it still doesn't, it still doesn't constitute a coherent story. Research can only answer very narrow questions. Even without a full understanding, though, it's pretty clear to me that this line of basic science research is on the right track, and it correlates much better with what we observe. I hope that you will explore the resources that are in your uh, packet and on this slide. And next year, if you are interested, we may be able to convince the conference chairs to invite educators and parents and self-advocates who are finding ways to harness their unruly bodies to meet with you and talk to you in person. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.